You're listening to Run With The Bulls, a podcast discussing a unique approach to everyday finance with everyday people. Run With The Bulls is sponsored by Mentoro, a financial wellness company. Now, your hosts, author Danny Kofke and the royalty of financial wellness, Whitney Queen. Welcome back. Today, we're doing a follow-up to a segment we did several months ago on fathers who are trying to take over the world. Let's begin with Scott Evil. What's going on with your dad? Well, my dad tried to take over the world with a, a giant laser on the moon. Oh. I know. Well, Scott, we uh, have a surprise for you. What, my dad? No, it's not your father. It's your mother. Oh. Come on out. <laughs> Mom? Scott, you are my love child with Dr. Evil. I thought I was a test tube baby. Lies. Oh, lies! Welcome to Run With The Bulls. My name is Danny Kofke, and I'm a motivational mentor with Mentoro. I'm joined by the president of Mentoro, Whitney Queen. Hey, Whit. Hey, Danny, and hello to everyone listening. Lies all lies, huh? Oh, boy. There's no telling where this one's going to go. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was a scene from Austin Powers in Wit. When we come on every week and, or every other week and do our best to give sound financial advice, I mean, that's kind of the goal of this podcast, right? Sure, yeah. But uh, how sound is the advice that we give? Well, technically, Danny, I just want to be clear. It's not advice. It's guidance. Guidance. Okay, yes. guidance. For all of you compliance people listening, it's, it's guidance. Education. <laughs> yes, yes, true. But I mean, honestly, I mean, is this for real? Am I being punked here? No, no. Ashton Kutcher's nowhere in sight. But we do have a special guest joining us today, our residential financial expert, Caleb Tucker. Hey, Caleb. Hey, Danny and Witt. Great to be back again. And it's a, it's a real pleasure to join you today. I think, I think we got a lot of good stuff to talk about. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited. We're so happy to have you and that you agreed to come back and talk with us. So everyone, Caleb is the Director of Portfolio Strategy with Merit Financial Advisors. And he joined us last season, for those of you who remember. Uh, he was on an episode where we discussed what to do when the market drops. Yeah, he told me to put 10 for... No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say he's definitely the right person for this episode, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, so, so managing your money, it obviously plays an important role in your life. I mean, it enables us to do all those things that we do. And, um, you know, that, that is why Mentoro is here. But how should you do that? Yale financial economist James Choi set out to answer that question. And so in a study titled Popular Personal Finance Advice Versus the Professors, Choi actually analyzed the advice given in 50 of the most popular personal finance books. And he compared those tips to what traditional economists would say. And I think what's, I love this topic, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I, when we talked about it before, I mean, I was already familiar with this article. I think it's really interesting and it's a real, it, it's an interesting way to bring together what the behavioral side of what we do and how we, how we interact with each other, along with the economists that tend to forget that or just, mm -hmm. you know, put it to the side right. sometimes. Right. So mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. a great topic. Yeah. On I paper, agree. a lot of things make sense. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and speaking of paper, I know that some of these books are ones that we've all read. Um, and that list includes The Automatic Millionaire by David Bach, 
Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey, and The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas Stanley, for those of you who are looking for some reading material. Yes, yes. Um, I could throw in a couple other books in it by now. Well, that's another episode. So <laughs> Do you one, know any authors? I, maybe. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe. Um, I think those people are a little more successful. They've sold a few more copies. That's okay. That's you know, still young. I got time. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, so one of the downfalls of traditional economic models is that they portray us as rational and disciplined creatures creatures who always make optimal financial choices, right? I mean, us humans, we always do the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, 100% of the time. So what makes sense on paper does not usually translate since that little thing called behavior gets in the way. Exactly. So in this battle between the what's what economists expect and, and plan for versus these self-help authors, we really see it play out. It's mm-hmm. it's the acknowledgement that uh, people aren't always rational. And, <laughs> I mean, in aggregate, maybe you can get an idea of what a rational person would do, but we all know if you, when you drive to work, you see people do irrational things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's out there. We act irrationally sometimes, and um, that's that's the battle. Here. Yeah, and as a former teacher at a parent-teacher conferences, I, I, I saw a couple of behaviors that weren't always rational, imagine. I'm sure. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. But, you know, this is an interesting one. When it comes to saving money, many economists offer this view. If you are young and on a solid career track, you might consider spending more and saving less right now. Yeah, so this is really interesting because I think on, on the surface, when you hear that an economist would say you should spend more now and mm-hmm. you know, save less later, you think – that sounds like the, a weird kind of advice to give, right? You're, you're thinking, <laughs> yeah. like, why would they actually say that? This is where, if, if you really think about it, though, the economist's perspective is that you know, you're going to make more money as you get older. Your income is kind of this, this bell-shaped curve over your ages, where when you're younger, you're making less money. As you get into your 30s, 40s, and 50s, your prime earning years, and then you retire, and that, that curve goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they're, the idea there is that you have a – a constant level of consumption that brings you joy and happiness. And that if you can keep that consistent over your lifetime, that's healthy. You know, you know and that, that brings you, an economist speak, the term there is utility. Like you get the mm-hmm. additional utility from whatever consumption uh-huh. you um, you pursue, right. I guess. Right. Yeah. Hey. Um, I mean, I can see where that makes sense. Yeah. But, you know, and Choi, like he goes on to tell his students, and these are young, you know, college kids. So you of all people should feel the least amount of guilt having credit card debt because your income is fairly low right now, but it will be predictably fairly high in the near future. And he says that once they start making money, they should probably pay down that debt quickly. And, you know, you see from a point of view, you can understand where that's coming from. And it was, I'll go back to my teaching days. There was this bus driver. And he was, I mean, he was probably in his mid-70s. And I'm like, man, you're still, you know, keep working. He's like, well, I decided when I was younger, that's when I was going to live my life. And I did all this stuff and I traveled the world and I didn't save any money. So now I have to work. He's like, but I thought when I was younger, I was healthy. I wanted to do all those fun things. And now I have to. So I'm like, <laughs> interesting. But hey, I guess if you like driving a bus still when you're in your 70s and more power to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the trade-off, right? Uh-huh. You know, there, there's a, an element of, how much do you plan for the future versus what you do right now? If I can digress into like a real, a basic economics example, when we talk about utility and like marginal utility, mm-hmm. the idea is, so if I 
if I have enough money to buy one pizza now, or if I wait and I'll earn more money and I can buy 10 pizzas in a month, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's finding the balance between what, what actually makes you happy enough. Cause at a certain point you don't need 10 pizzas. Like mm-hmm. one might make you happy, <laughs> right? right? Okay. Like I could eat one pizza by myself and I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I don't need to buy that second one. And, and I think so, you know, when you think about your, your early life spending and, and trying to keep that consistent, that's kind of the point the economists are making that, yes. Hey, you know, you, if you earn enough to get that one pizza, you can be happy with that. You don't have to save every single penny so that you can have 10 next month. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you got to be careful and you, you don't want to, once you can afford more, you start to buy five, even though you don't want them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, Anyway, that's the the simple, I think, economist example of uh-huh. what they're getting at. Yeah. I love that. Um, and I think the advice given in most of the personal finance books Choi read contradicts um, what you were talking about earlier, Danny. These authors argue you should live within your means and save a percentage of your income no matter if you're 25, 35, or 55. These authors cite the power of compound interest, and I know that's one of your favorite topics. <laughs> yes. So, and, and, you know, Choi does note that these economists do recognize the power of compound interest. But a, a lot of times, the, I, I think the importance of establishing that habit is, is really what the personal finance gurus are really getting yes. at. It's, it's, this is where we get into the behavioral side of this, mm-hmm. right? Because um, there's something else that, it, you know, economists really can't account for, which is, if you, if you do take that alternate view and say that, hey, I'm going to try to save a portion of my income no matter what it is, and I'm going to do that consistently, I'm going to cut back on consumption now so I can save now, I think it does change your mindset. It, it can do that, and it can kind of coach you to put you in a position where you're more likely to do that when you're 30 and 40 and 50, which is when you really need to because your income is increased, right? Whereas if you've never saved a dime in your life and all of a sudden you're you're making more than you were 10 years ago it's it's easy to be used to spending all that your your consumption your consumption keeps up and then the question is whether or not you're really actually getting value out of it or if it's just right kind of mindless consumption because Mm -hmm. you you can't lifestyle creep right Mm -hmm. exactly Mm -hmm. 100 percent. so when it comes to saving money who wins the economists or the authors Choi is actually okay with both approaches He says, on one hand, I do have a lot of sympathy for the view that you might be unnecessarily depriving yourself in your 20s and even your 30s when, very predictably, your income will likely be much higher in later decades. With that being said, I do think there is something to this notion of being disciplined and learning to live within your means at a young age. And I think that just hits exactly what you just said, Caleb. And, you know, we talk about it here all the time live below your means. So within live below your means, and no matter how much you make, if you do that, then you always have margin in life for when stuff that we can't predict happens. And, you know, once again, it does. We live irrational lives. Precisely. Mm -hmm. So being disciplined and learning to live within your means is something we can all agree with, I'd say. Coming up after the break, some more battles between The Economist and The Authors. Connect with us on social media. Search at Mentoro Group on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Welcome back. 
On this episode, we are taking a look at a study titled Popular Personal Finance Advice Versus the Professors. So in this study, James Choi, a financial economist at Yale, analyzed the advice given in 50 of the most popular personal finance books and compared these tips with a traditional economic thinking. Another topic he analyzed was, how should you think about your budget? Even economists can't stay away from that dreaded B word, Danny. No, they can't. They can't. Budgets are everywhere, right? So, (laughs) you know, um, it's this one to me is really interesting because this is where you can really get into the the behavioral side and and, um, mental accounting is the the, kind of the term for the behavioral and and personal, the, the popular personal finance authors and advisors. You know, they talk a lot of their strategies are tied to this kind of mental accounting side of things. But the economist, on the other hand, it's it's kind of night and day that that perspective, because in the traditional economist view, a dollar is a dollar, no matter what it's going to be used for. And I think I mean, we can flesh this out over you know the next few minutes. But I, th- that's what the where the discrepancy shows up because mm-hmm. economists view, I mean, $1 is the same as the next dollar. Sure. But as people, sometimes we don't view it that way. This dollar, this dollar is more important than this dollar because I'm going to use it for this. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that's what happens. You know, it's yeah. so funny. I was having a, a similar conversation with my husband over the weekend because we're looking at building a home. Mm-hmm. And so we're going through, you know, these different kind of line items that are coming up over the next couple of months and making sure that at no point, you know, we're putting a bind or it's exceeding anything out of our normal budget, anything like that. And it very much was that conversation of like, well, these dollars here and these, and it like became such a stressful conversation. And at the end of it, we're both like, it's a, it's just money coming in and money going out. Let's calm down (laughs) and, you know, get back to, the goal of what this conversation was, which is how do you allocate it? And, mm-hmm. right. you know, are you still in a good place? So you, you it sounds like you all you went through both sides of this. Right. You, you were doing right. both at the same time almost. Yes. Yeah. And our brains just like. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Into smoke. Yeah. So I got to pick one or the other. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and roll with it. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and so going back to what you were saying, Caleb, I mean, a dollar is a dollar. Agreed. But many people, including this uh, elementary education major, don't view money this way. Kind of like what Whitney was just saying, um, they do what behavioral economists call mental accounting. That is when we earmark certain money for certain things. And then, you know, these dollars are for this, these dollars are for that. And that's the way the human usually think. Right. Exactly. And that's where, you know, the... I think from the the human side of it, it it does make things easier. If you've got a you, you know you're saving up for a vacation, you're saving up for a, an expense like a house, it does it makes you feel better to 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 see it sometimes. There mm-hmm. and there you know, I know there are even apps out there. Um, I think even my banking app will allow you to bucket money mm-hmm. if you want to. You can say like, hey, I've got this account. I'm gonna this hundred dollars is for X expense, right? And it, I think it. It makes you feel good to feel like you see the money there and you yes. know that it's what it's for. But again, the economist would say, well, if that dollar is the same as the next dollar, you your only focus should be on maximizing that kind of total return. What's the best allocation of these yeah. dollars? And and that's again where I think there's a clear you could you can do the math. I could show you the math on well, you look at these dollars the same way and you know, you do your best to invest them appropriately and allocate them appropriately. And then when you have expenses, you, you pull them as you need to. Mm-hmm. But, but again, there's, there has to be an acknowledgement, I think that in the real world, 
sometimes people can't stick to that. It's right. it's it's too cumbersome. It you know it it doesn't seem real and tangible. And and sometimes, and I think this this probably happens a lot. If you've got a bunch of money in one bucket, it can be harder to keep track of it. I think mm-hmm. you know yeah. it, it it almost can be counterproductive because then if it's like you know, you don't see that vacation budget going down because you're spending too much. Uh-huh. Sometimes it could happen maybe without you you realizing it. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, again, so this is a, an acknowledgement that we operate in an imperfect world. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, you know, kind of going back to the example I was just giving you guys, my uh, personal tendency is to, like, over bucket because I'm so, like, anal mm-hmm. about certain things. So, like, I will have 57 different buckets to make sure that it's all accounted for, whereas my husband follows the notion of, like, let's just have one big bucket. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that hard, Whitney. So, yeah, it's it's interesting how personality and behavior kind of come together and where does that balance really lie, right? Sure, sure. So Choi found that 17 of the 50 books he read – advocate for some sort of mental accounting exercise and he says this advice might actually make sense it makes financial calculations easier for people and may motivate them to accomplish their goals right and and caleb you know i I don't know how you view this but i am big about earmarking my savings for certain categories Um, and we did an episode last season season before when i took a deep dive into my subcategories i brought in my register yes i still use a a register (laughs) i balance it to the penny but i have these subcategories of you know like this is my vacation fund this is my christmas fund right here this is for insurance and i have all those buckets so i mean you know from your point of view what do you think about that that you know i think we, we've kind of danced around it. The fact is that in the real world, when we have complicated lives and, and we always have a lot going on, if that's what helps you actually do what you need to do, which is save for various expenses or, uh, you know, meet different goals that you have in life, then that's probably what you should do. Right. You know, the, even if it's 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 a few percentage points less optimal than what the the spreadsheet and the economist mm-hmm. would tell you. The fact is if you if you try to eke out those minimal gains, you know, on doing it the best way possible and then you don't do it at all, right. you know, where are you, right? So so Danny like you said, I mean it, it sounds like if that approach is what gets you to where you need to be, then you're on the right track. So make personal finance personal. Hmm, Make, that's yeah. a thought. Interesting. Maybe Interesting. customize yeah. it for yourself. Interesting. Right? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Choi also took a look at whether we should be house rich and cash poor. As we've discussed before, many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Some live in huge houses and are stretched thin after paying for them. On paper, they are technically rich since their house is a valuable asset. But after paying for all that comes with such a huge house are just barely actually getting by. So Choi discovered that economists and the authors are pretty clear on this one. Don't do it. Both camps agree you should not buy a house you cannot afford, as this can be super stressful and lead to financial ruin. Mm, Well, I'm glad we have some agreement on that one. We can go back to 07, 08, and uh, yeah, I think it's pretty clear cut uh, Mm -hmm. why that's not a good idea. This does, you know, nobody's going to advocate for doing doing more living beyond your means. Mm -hmm. So if there's an agreement there, which uh, (laughs) is is refreshing. Yes, yes. I Um, would just be curious, you know, in this day and age with how expensive houses have gotten, where does that philosophy fall? Because here in Atlanta, especially, it's extremely challenging to be able to invest in a house and and 
you know, make sure that you're also putting yourself in a Mm -hmm. healthy financial situation. I think about a lot of people starting out for the first time. That's that's a huge investment. And a lot of them are probably going to have a few years where it's it could be tough. Right. And it's a great point. I mean, and I can even speak from personal experience. I know in most situations, even whenever you buy that the first house, it's probably always going to feel like a little bit of a stretch, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, of course, for the young person, especially like it's by far the biggest expense you've ever had. Mm-hmm. And no matter how, you know, well planned out and situated you are, it's going to feel a little stressful. I remember yeah. you know, when you go from being a renter to, to owning a, a house and you, you know that um, if the ceiling collapses, that's your problem now right. and not somebody else's. <laughs> like, water yeah. heater goes out. Yeah, like that, yeah. Yep. that stressed me out. Right, So I think, you know, that's going to be there. But you're right. It gets harder as, you, you know, as prices have gone up a lot. Well, um, you know, you th- I, I remember there being an argument when we really saw an escalation after COVID of a first time home buyer, you know, asking a question. I think it was on like a TikTok video. He's like, how am I supposed to save for 20 percent down when my you know, when that amount keeps growing so tremendously, mm-hmm. like it's like every time I get close to having enough saved, then, you know, the mm-hmm. runway gets further. So, yeah, it's it's really tough. I think for sure we definitely all agree on that. But you also have to be real, too, and understand that there's going to be a little risk in such big investments. Right. Just make sure you're looking not just at the short term, but also the long term, I right. think. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know how young kids. Honestly, I think back when my first house, I'll tell you. $89,000 is what it cost. That's and amazing. it wasn't, I mean, it was a two bedroom, two bath house, nothing but $89,000. And we were both, you know, school teachers. I'm like, I don't know what I would, if I graduated and Trace graduated right now from college as elementary school teachers, I, I don't know what we could buy. So I do think it is, you know, just one of those bigger decisions. We shouldn't be, you know, house poor, but I, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be a whole nother episode because I, I don't yeah. know how these young, uh, yeah, it's going to be tough. Whitney, I think Danny keeps proving to us that he's the elder statesman in the room. Yeah, with, uh, his the way he balances the budget, and, you know, and, and his eighty nine thousand dollar house. Yeah, you know, yeah he's that's, like, yeah. this yeah. is how you yeah. do it. Okay, right. boomer. But, and, now I'll, I'll get my last word here. Nobody yeah. asked, but I'm going to tell you just in case you can edit this out later. None. Is for what it's worth. I think when you think about the economy, something's a lot of things can be dislocated in the short term. Over the long run, though, the kind of the, the free market system for a lot of things does self-correct. Mm-hmm. And so what happens here is is eventually when homes do get so unaffordable, they get so bid up that people can't buy them, the market does have to correct. Those prices have to come down. Interest rates may even come down at a later, you know, in the future, which makes things a little bit easier. But it doesn't mean you don't hit these short-term pockets of a dislocation where there is a mismatch. And the, what's happened now is house prices have stayed elevated, even though there's less demand, because there's less supply. Mm-hmm. People don't want to sell their house because of the perception that they're going to get less for it. The housing market isn't as hot as it was before, so you don't sell your house, you sit on it, when all of a sudden there's fewer houses, which means prices still kind of level out. Yeah. But I, I, I do really believe that in the long run, this this kind of thing works itself out, but but it certainly it doesn't that doesn't fix the problem right now, right now. for right. somebody right. who's trying. Right, right, right. Yep. right. So, yeah. I'm prepared for my daughters to live with me for a while. That's fine. I mean, it just is, you know, so it's all good. So um, so when we get back, we're going to take a look at some more debates between the authors and the economists. Like what you are hearing on Run With The Bulls? Want a little more? 
Visit MyMentoro.com and use organization code RUNWITHTHEBULLS to set up your free account today. Welcome back. In this episode, we've been discussing how economists and popular personal finance authors differ in their thinking. In the next topic our Yale professor James Choi unpacked was how much of your money should be invested in stocks. So Choi says that both the authors and economists agree that when you are young, you should invest most of your money in stocks and just a small percentage in bonds. In addition, those sides agree that as you get older, you should get more conservative and rebalance your portfolio away from stocks and more towards less risky investments like bonds. So Caleb, what do you think about this one? I'd say that tracks. You know, it, it, it makes sense. I think in, in some ways, the economists and um, personal finance people maybe arrive at this conclusion in different ways. They're coming at it from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. But in general, that's what we see most people doing. And I, I would say when you, if you think about your asset allocation, when you're actually investing money, the, the trend is to say, yes, you take more risk as you're younger. Your income potential is, is higher. Um, so you have the, the ability and maybe some flexibility to take more risk. Whereas when you're older, you're, maybe your working years are completely behind you. It's, it's a tougher challenge to approach volatility in the markets, right? Sure. You can't really absorb it as easily as a younger person can. So it, it makes sense. And I, I would say usually the, the reasons why that kind of general principle don't hold true are more outliers than the norm. Right. It doesn't mean there aren't, uh, you know, people, re- retirees that invest very aggressively, but mm-hmm. that's probably because they've got a ton of pension income. They've got, mm-hmm. you know, they've got something else, right. right, that makes it different. But in general, I think the principle makes a lot of sense. Right. I mean, it makes sense. If you're depending on this money to eat, you don't want to be risky with it. Right now, I can be risky because if I lose money, guess what? I could go get a second job. I could, I could generate more money. I have working capital. Whereas sometimes when you're older, you don't have that working capital right. anymore, so you're dependent only on your investments. Precisely. Yep. Mm-hmm. What I found interesting is that while they both agreed on this thought, their reasoning for doing so is different. Generally speaking, the popular authors say that while stocks are risky in the short term, you should invest in them when you are young because they earn higher rates of return than bonds over the long term. And while this notion usually holds true, Choi notes that this is not always the case. So he took a look at international markets and points out that in Japan, the stock market has still not recovered to the level it was in 1989. And while this happened overseas, it shows that it's not true that stocks always win in the long term. The authors go on to say that as you get closer to retirement, you should get out of stocks and invest more in bonds since they're usually less risky. So a popular rule of thumb is you start with the number 100. Subtract your age from it and the number you get as the percentage of your portfolio that you should be invested in stocks with the rest in bonds. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you are 30 years old, you take 100 minus 30 to get 70. So in this case, your portfolio would be made up of 70% bonds or 70% stocks and 30% bonds or even cash equivalents, you know, less risky investments. So Caleb, does this, I know it's a general rule of thumb, but does it still kind of hold true? I think in the principle behind it makes sense. I I do have a, a little bit of a maybe a personal bias against it. Where I think it's okay. not it's really not perfect. Which I guess you know you don't expect any general rule to be perfect. Right. But I think uh, especially at the on the edges on the fringes of of the kind of age range here. Mm-hmm. If you're a thirty year old, your best earning years are still ahead of you, and you're still going to be working probably another thirty years. Right. 
being a you know in a seventy percent stock portfolio, thirty percent bonds, that for some people that may be too conservative. I can I can speak okay. from my own experience. It's it's more conservative than I would be. Okay. Do you know um, when these this model kind of came out? Do you know any idea like how long ago it was? I'm just asking because like now with life expectancy going up, it's true too. Uh, that's a great point. I mean that and that's one of the biggest I think changes that we're going to see over the next the next several years is. Life expectancy does creep up, and, and your financial planning really has to account for that longevity mm-hmm. risk that's out right. there when you retire. Um, and I think, not that you didn't before, but I think as as we keep progressing as a society and people do live longer, that becomes more and yeah. more important. Um, so that's certainly out there. I'm not sure when this kind of rule of thumb was popularized, mm-hmm. and, I, and I've heard it before. You know, it's, it's right. not the first it's, time I've heard it. And, I, and again, it you know, we're a lot of these questions and answers, I think you end up they're not blatantly wrong. It's right. just, you know, for different people, they're not going to apply the same way. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you know, if, if you just take the rule of thumb, um, it might get you 80% of the way there, but there's a chance that with some tailoring and, and real thought put into your situation, maybe it, you, you know, there's some tweaks that get right. made that mm-hmm. make, that really make it yours as opposed to a rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Right. Shameless plug here, but I think that, you know, helps us prove the point of why having a mentor, being financially educated, having a financial advisor is a good thing to have, you know, in your corner because those are people who can help you have a better understanding of what your personal circumstances are. They can have, you know, the conversations with you about your behavior, all these things we've been talking about. That's, that's kind of your little sidekick who can say, here you go. Here's what you need to do based on your risk tolerance. Maybe you are, um, somebody who doesn't need to follow this general rule of thumb for whatever reason, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the economists agree with the authors that you should get more conservative with your investments over time, as you were saying. Uh, however, Choi noticed that their reasoning was different from the author- authors. He wrote, for almost all working people, the major ec- economic asset they have is their future wage income. Yeah. So in other words, you can think of your work skills as part of your financial plan. So in fact, this is known as your human capital, and it is the biggest form of wealth you own. So think about when you're young, you can balance your human capital with investing in riskier things like stocks. So of course, the stock market could go down, but you have the security of being able to work and earn money for many years in the future. On the flip side, as you get older, you more than likely will not be able to work as hard. Your human capital thus becomes a smaller part of your financial plan. So it just kind of makes sense. Like, I mean, obviously most of us, when we get to a certain age, we either don't want to work or we won't be able to work. And that's when we're going to have to depend on our investments to help us out because we're not going to be able to generate that income through our work. Right. You know, Danny, we start talking about human capital and you're kind of this is, it's really getting into some of the economists speak that I think is probably why people don't read a lot of economic papers. <laughs> so it's good that you explained it the way you, you did there because it's not a commonly yeah. The nine to five, thing, that's right? what we're talking about. So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, I, I do think that it's true though, that when you, if you really step back and look at economic value for, for you throughout a career, right? The your value shifts over time, just like you're talking about. And when you get out of college, you've got a ton of potential, mm-hmm. and but you don't have a lot of reward for that potential yet, right? right. That's you know that's why you're living in a studio with three roommates, or you know, yeah. You're, yeah. You're, you know that's that's what happens. But you've you've got a lot of potential. You still have a lot of future to look forward to, 
And, and that's your that's your asset. That's your human capital that you're talking about. And, and then, again, when you get older, you've spent a lot of that human capital. It's been reallocated into hopefully career success, you know, life, family success, things mm-hmm. like that. And, and it does change the game of, of how you should allocate your dollars. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I love this. This is great just because it does, like we started this part of the conversation with, the economists and the, the personal finance gurus, they, they gave a similar answer, but for different reasons. <laughs> yes. Totally different directions, landed in the same spot. Right, right. Yep. So I'll warn you, this last one might ruffle some feathers for you, Caleb. Are you ready? I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> So, Choi looked at if you should invest in actively managed funds or passive index funds. Actively managed funds are those where you pay an expert to pick and choose the stocks for you. These fund managers can charge big fees with the promise of higher returns. Index funds, however, have nobody actively picking and choosing the investments for you. These funds simply passively hold a small piece of each major company in the stock market, thereby earning the overall average market return. And I can see Caleb biting his tongue. He's ready to go. So um, the economists and personal finance authors agree on this one, too. They both say you should go with index funds. Choi notes the data is pretty compelling. On average, passive or index funds outperform actively managed funds. Okay, we're going to take the duct tape off you, Caleb. Let's hear what you got. All right, I've got a lot, <laughs> uh, and I'll, good, I'll keep good. it. I'll keep it brief. Um, you know, I, I guess at, at first pass and hearing uh, and reading about what Choi noted and, and what some of the popular advice is, I certainly I don't dispute the validity of it, and I think I think it's true. I mean. In general, the the investing landscape has changed where 20, 30 years ago, you didn't have just the multitude of options of these super low cost index funds out there to invest in. Um, And in general, expenses have come down in in the investing landscape. It's Mm -hmm. easier for normal people to invest now and less costly now than it ever has been in the past. And I think that trend's probably going to continue. And so what a lot of this points to is the fact that you know, markets can be unpredictable in the short term, especially, but even, you know, in the long run, you don't know exactly what your return is going to be, but you can pretty much calculate what your expenses will be. And you, if you know that you, you've got a, a built-in expense that's going to reduce your overall return, that's a known factor. Mm-hmm. And there is certainly value in keeping that low. Now, I, you know, I, I do stop short of saying, I think, uh, I guess like a lot of what I've said today, there, there's not a, it, it's not a perfect principle. I, um, in my view, there can be opportunities and times where it's possible that an actively managed fund and an active manager may actually provide some value. And sometimes that value is not always in better returns, but it's in lower risk, finding mm-hmm. ways to reduce risk. Right. Um, and, and that can have value too, if it reduces some volatility. So, you know, I, I don't think that there's a, you know, if you have a portfolio that has some active managers in there, if they're high quality and and there's a real reason for them to be there, it's possible they may be worth it. But they, but what's really being highlighted here is just the fact that uh, across the landscape, we know that keeping expenses low is really important. And if you're paying excessively high fees across your entire investment portfolio, that's not good. Right. You know, that, that you really have to manage those expenses. And that's what's most important. Sure, sure. You know, and I, I kind of look at it like, 
looking at like the economists and authors, I recently read with, met with my financial advisor who does my investments. And it's just like, of course, this is what I want to hear from him, but he doesn't take the human behavior. So we ran through all the Monte Carlo scenarios of my investments and what they're going to do. And he's like, well, you should really, you know, because of course, as an advisor, you want to be, you know, at least at that. And the Monte Carlo basically runs, it's like a thousand simulations on what the stock market's going to do to make sure that you're going to have enough income in retirement. And you want it to be above, I think, like 80% is what the goal is in that. He's like, well, if you take this much and you got to invest a little more each month so you can do that. And I'm like, of course, you're going to say that. I said, but, you know, the next five years of my life right now, I'm going to have Tracy, my wife's back in college, getting her master's. I'm going to have three people in college. I said, I'm really, really not. I mean, we're okay. I have a pension with TR, with teacher retirement system. My wife does as well. I said, I'm really kind of not worried about 62 right now. I'm kind of worried about the next five years. But I mean, of course, from a, on the paper alone, it makes much more sense for me to up my investing because I could have more. But I'm like, man, I'm worried about the next <laughs> couple of years. So we're going to hold off. But and I think that's where you just have to look at both sides. Yes, what he's saying is makes sense. But for me personally, it doesn't make sense right now. Well, I think you're, you're kind of getting back to one of the things we touched on before, which is the mental accounting piece, mm-hmm. right? You know, because that's the, the pure spreadsheet answer that, that you can run the calculations on. It'll show you, yeah, Danny, if you you up this investment amount and we, we assume this rate of return yes. and inflation, all this stuff, here's what you're going to have. Right. But like as you're getting at, you've got the real human mm-hmm. life aspect of this, mm-hmm. which is the, the three family members in college, yeah. you know, things like that that make you say, well, yeah, but I'd really like to have some of this over here. Right. right. You know, it's right now. This money's for this now. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yes. and that's a very real thing. Right. The other thing, I mean, this is a kind of a side point, but um, we, I thought about it when we were talking about being house, uh, house rich, but like cash poor. Mm-hmm. But similarly, one of the biggest times where people make mistakes with investing is when they, they overextend and they, they do too much and they end up stressing themselves out. So mm-hmm. people make, in general, you make poor decisions or, or harder decisions uh, have to be made when you're stressed out, yeah. especially when it comes to money and investing. If you're stressed out about what you're doing, you're more likely to make a mistake. So a real key is to, to make sure that you're comfortable with what's happening. So going back to your, your example, yeah. Danny, if, if investing more made you uncomfortable and that causes you to make a mistake, which that mistake right. might be the market goes down a little bit and mm-hmm. you're already uncomfortable, so you sell, right? And then you, it, it throws off everything, you miss market recoveries, things like that happen and people make those mistakes more often when they are stressed out. They feel right. overextended. You know? Right. And, and I just looked at my priorities. I want both my daughters to graduate with no student loan debt. That is my goal. So I'm going to help pay for that. So that way when they're 23, 24, they're off my payroll, hopefully, and on their own. And then I look at it like I try to stay healthy, that I can I can work long. My hope is I can add those years. I know we just talked, right. not, you may not be able to, but part of my financial plan is staying healthy so I can hopefully still work as long as I need to. So I think it just kind of goes back to, I I like what, you know, these discussions with authors and economists, but once again, you have to do what's right for you in your situation. So both sides can make sense, but it may not make sense to you. So mm-hmm. you have to do what's can, right for you. Can I take us down a, a quick rabbit hole? Yeah. Yes. I, I love this. I like rabbit holes. Yes. I love this rabbit hole and I love analogies. <laughs> so um, when you, when you think about what a really good coach does, and I think this can apply to, for me, it applies like Kirby to Kirby Smart. To, 
like Kirby Smart. Perfect. Yes. Perfect. I Perfect. do like him. <laughs> you have to because he came from Alabama. Right. Uh, Alabama people, people like to claim a little bit of credit for him, even though he still went to Georgia. But they can take it, you know, whatever. Is this the rabbit hole? This is, uh, I love this rabbit hole. <laughs> this is not the rabbit hole. This okay. is uh, okay. a separate rabbit hole off the first rabbit hole. <laughs> the, the initial rabbit hole, though, was, you know, a, I think what a good coach does, a lot of times a, a really great coach doesn't show you exactly what to do. So if you think about it, if it's tennis or golf or, so, you know, where you've got a stroke or there's a, a real method to what you need to do, the motion you need to make. Um, again, I equate it to tennis because I play a lot of tennis. A really great tennis coach, and this came from a book uh, called The Inner Game of Tennis by, I think it's Tim Galway. Okay. He got real famous for this approach to coaching, is instead of showing somebody, like, you have to hit a forehand this way, you have to hit a serve this way, if you take somebody who has hit a tennis ball once in their life and you see what they did and then just tell them to think about what, um, you know, okay, well, that shot wasn't great, here's here's what you should try to do. You know, try to make sure you hit the ball a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And it's simple things like that. It's not necessarily showing them you have to hold the racket this way and do it this way. It's just giving you an idea of here's the target you should be trying to hit. And you kind of figure it out and you make it your own stroke. That's why if you watch pro tennis, everybody doesn't have the same strokes. They do, they look wildly different, but clearly if you're a pro tennis player, it's pretty effective, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's, it's working for you. And so I, I, I go down that rabbit hole back to the finance thing to say, I think that, you know, you, you personalize these things mm -hmm. because a lot of times the principles, they can apply broadly, but it doesn't mean that the rule has to be the rule for everybody. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and there is real value in everybody's got really different situations and, and there's real value in thinking through that and knowing what works best for you. Some of these, you know, some of these principles from economists that are great on paper, if you're a super disciplined person, maybe you're an economist, maybe that's what you want to do. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, so it doesn't mean you can't do it, right. but it, it just means that for a lot of people that may not be the right thing. It, mm -hmm. it, it may not be a plan you can stick to. Right. So. Right. right. No, I like the, I like the analogy with because I think of a golf swing. Like yes. when you right. look at different golfers, you look at someone like Bubba Watson, and by the way, yeah. he went to University of Georgia. Who back to back? <laughs> okay, but you look at his golf swing, and it's like doesn't follow anything that a golf coach would right. teach you. But yet, what he won the Masters twice, and he's one of the so exactly. But it's like when the ball hits the club, this is what you have to focus yeah. on. So you're, yeah, you're, it's like how ballerinas approach pirouettes. I don't know if you guys That's exactly what I was going to say next. I was thinking yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was the next rabbit hole I had. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to get you guys out of a like sports it. land a little bit. <laughs> I'm glad we covered all the bases. We did. Yes, so. we, did. For, yeah. we did. All yes. the different sports No, but and you arts. are right. And we'll, I mean, I don't, and we mentioned, you know, his book was one of them, Dave Ramsey. I, I think Dave Ramsey's approach can work for a lot of people, but not everyone is going to eat rice and beans for seven years to get out of debt. So I think right. we have to be mindful of that as well. Like, yes, if you do that, absolutely, it's going to work. But how many people are actually going to do that? So I think right. it goes back to the human effect of do well, what's best for you. And like I brought up in the example earlier, sometimes it's not just your way. It's not mm -hmm. just your finances, your choice. It's yours and your spouse's or in your case, it's yours and your family's. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot riding on that. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of future outcomes that you just can't predict. So, right. right. Yeah. So I think this is the perfect time to ask, actually, um, for the big reveal. Who's right? 
Is it the uh, popular personal finance authors or is it the economist? Right. What and do we, we say? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it this whole time. I mean, Choi basically says that while economists know a lot about how people should act, humans tend to not act this way. Hmm. Imagine that. We don't mm-hmm. always do what's in our best interest. Hmm. So this is why Choi understands where the authors are coming from as well. He says, given that we all have these quirks, we might have to resort to strategies that are less than perfect. Choi elaborates saying, I think of it in terms of a diet. The best diet is the one that you can stick to. Economic theory might be saying you need to be eating skinless chicken breasts and steamed vegetables for the rest of your life. (laughs) Uh, Boring. Uh, And you can't have anything other than that. That's going to be the best for your health. And really, very few people will actually follow through with it. Because, I mean, why, why would you? Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. So linking money management to a diet. I think I have heard a couple of people, a couple podcast hosts making this analogy. Yeah. And Gosh, we didn't even go to Yale. I mean, the Florida Atlantic and Alabama. So uh, imagine that. <laughs> very, very true, Danny. Uh, even if it makes sense on paper, as Caleb, you've said, you know, uh, that thing called life can almost always derail a perfect plan. Yeah. So, Caleb, I mean, does this final verdict of choice, does it surprise you? Like, what are your thoughts on it? What do you think? I, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, and I think we've that may not be a big surprise based on my prior comments already. But right. I, I do tend to agree. I think you know, that in, in, in life in general, but certainly with money, when you act intentionally, that's always going to be better than acting without intention, right? If there's no intention behind what you're doing, there's no thought behind it, that's that's definitely going to be a suboptimal outcome. Mm-hmm. So the fact is, you know, that you could you could go down either approach, you know, the, the hardcore, hardline economist, uh, spreadsheet, big terms type of approach, or the personal finance guru approach. But the fact is, if you, I think if you approach it with thoughtfulness and you have a plan that you can stick to, that's a recipe for success. So if you do the economist route and you can actually do it, that is great for you. You're probably better than most people when it comes to discipline. You probably eat lots of vegetables. Um, you, you know, so if that works for you, that's great. But in reality, you know, we all have to acknowledge the world that we live in and how complex it is and how life gets in the way of a lot of things. Right. And, uh, and that's where if if the advice that's maybe suboptimal on the spreadsheet, but it, it really helps you stick to your plan, if if that works for you, then that's the best advice because that's certainly better than not having a plan, mm-hmm. right? Right, mm-hmm. and not thinking about it. So I, I think that's that's the answer. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Any final uh, Any final thoughts, Danny? No. I mean, I, I, you know, I see, and that's what I think we do. And you mentioned earlier, Whitney, here at Mentoro, is just like that human side of it. Like, yes, on paper, a lot of stuff. I mean, communism made sense on paper, right? <laughs> we saw how that works. So I think that's where we just have to take a look. And I think that's what we do is like take a look at the person and like, hey, yes, this is, you know, we'll show you the right direction that you should go to. But you figure out how to get there. We've done mm-hmm. presentations where we talk about the debt snowball and the debt avalanche. I personally prefer the debt snowball. That is for me. But for some people, the debt avalanche works best for them. I don't care which approach you use. You have to do what's right for you. And I think right. that's what, to me, this whole episode is about and what this paper was about is like it, it does go back. You do have to have a goal. You have to aim for it and try to hit it. But how you go about doing it, you have to pick which right way is you know the right way for you. And yeah. not just what some paper says because, yeah, right. it does make sense. But, hey, it's not going to make sense for me. Right, right. Very well said, you two. Okay. I think that's a wrap for the episode. Can we go do some ballerina? 
Yeah, I would training session on pirouettes and fuetes. I can't wait. Third if we're gonna start or whatever with whatever this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're gonna start with how to pronounce all of the terms first. You're gonna have to tell me what those even mean. First. Yeah. <laughs> then we'll do the pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. Stay- Go dogs. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. So please check us out on social media. We're in all your usual places, and if you ever have a topic you'd like us to cover, feel free to email us at podcast at mentorgroup.com. Caleb, thank you so much for joining us again. It's been a pleasure to have you. Danny, thank you for bringing us this very interesting study to talk through. And thank you all for listening. Catch us next time as we run with the bulls. Run with the Bulls is sponsored by Mentoro and hosted by Danny Kofke and Whitney Queen. Learn more by visiting mentorogroup.com.